Section 10 of the South American Republics, Volume 2, by Thomas Cleland Dawson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Piotr Nater. Part 2, Chile. Chapter 3, The War of Independence, Part 1. The last years of Spanish rule were the most prosperous Chile had known. A brisk coasting trade sprang into being. A small merchant marine grew up. The removal of the prohibition against free commerce with the rest of Spanish South America raised prices. The opening of Buenos Aires reacted upon her western neighbor, and Chile ceased to depend on the Isthmus route. A spirit of enterprise was awakened by a freer intercourse with the outside world, and by the immigration of hardy adventurers who came through Buenos Aires, the great American rendezvous of that day. Among these immigrants was the famous Ambrose O'Higgins, a poor Irish lad who landed at Buenos Aires, made his way to Chile, started as a peddler, became an army contractor, made a fortune, got a commission in the army, distinguished himself in an expedition against the Araucanians, ingratiated himself with everybody by his wit, courage, and good-natured shrewdness, and finally was selected as captain-general. He ruled the country wisely and well, until promoted to be viceroy at Lima. His successors were mostly able and honest men, and under their government the natural causes, making for the prosperity of Chile, had free scope. Wealth increased, and with it love of display, honors, and letters. Santiago became a real capital, the favorite residence of the landed aristocracy, and the social center where fashions were prescribed. The English war into which France pushed Spain in 1796 much damaged Chilean commerce, but not sufficiently to stop the impulse already received. The old ignorant content with Spanish rule gave place to a growing demand for the removal of all restrictions, and the appetite for commercial freedom grew with what it fed on. Chile was still comparatively poor and backward. The rude population were engaged in a harsh struggle with fierce savages, and in laying the foundations of material prosperity. Most of these people were the descendants of Indians accustomed for centuries to implicit obedience to a rustic, unlettered aristocracy. The genius of the race was rather practical than ideal, and the long, careless government by men invariably chosen for their military abilities rather than their qualities as civil administrators had not tended to make Chile a fertile soil for the development of revolutionary ideas. Chilean society was less favorably constituted for sudden change than that of Buenos Aires, the boom-town of that time, with its active commerce, its restless recently arrived population, or that of the northern viceroyalties, controlled by professional and office-holding classes and parish priests. Two or three hundred families held most of the lands of Chile, and the power of this aristocracy was especially predominant in the provinces around Santiago. In the southern provinces long wars had thinned the native population and dispossessed the original grantees. Estates were more widely distributed and opinion more radical, but in the rest of the country the newer immigrants had been forced to accept the system, and the comparatively few families who owned the land and thereby controlled the means of subsistence of the whole people, enjoyed unquestioned ascendancy. But conservative as this aristocracy was, among its members there rankled a profound jealousy of the Spanish officials who wrung excessive taxes from their reluctant fingers, who enforced the Spanish regulations forbidding the culture of grapes 
olives and tobacco who until recently had closed the ports cutting off the profitable sale of crops and compelling the payment of extravagant prices for manufactured goods and most irritating of all who still monopolized the lucrative offices the news of ferdinand's imprisonment and the invasion of spain by napoleon's armies reached chile in the late summer of eighteen o nine creating great excitement among the spanish office-holders and the creole aristocracy sentiment was universal against submission to the french usurpation and discussion at once began of how the government should be carried on during the king's captivity carrasco the captain-general hesitated and vacillated between the conflicting suggestions in preparation for an emergency whose exact nature no one could foresee the city authorities gathered arms drilled troops and levied extra taxes the property-owning and governing classes divided into two currents of opinion the government officials with their friends and hangers-on saw that their interests would best be served by the recognition of the revolutionary juntas which had assumed the ad interim direction of affairs in spain the leading creole families proposed the establishment of an independent junta pending ferdinand's return or the definite defeat of the national cause in spain although the latter party warmly protested their faithfulness to the mother country at bottom they designed to secure for chile and chileans virtual independence while spain's trouble lasted and the spanish officials did not hesitate to characterize their opponents as rebels feeling rapidly grew intense and in may eighteen ten the captain-general ordered the arrest of several prominent creoles this arbitrary measure aroused such a fierce clamor that carrasco lost his nerve and consented to the release of the prisoners this indication of weakness encouraged the agitators and when news came across the andes that the people of buenos aires had deposed their viceroy santiago broke into revolution the captain-general had summoned an open cabildo to enjoin obedience to certain orders received from spain but this assembly tumultuously demanded his resignation helpless against the popular outcry and the hostile attitude of the city government he turned over his authority to toro a wealthy nobleman whose venerable age and pacific disposition seemed likely to preserve the peace nevertheless the creoles persisted in their demand for an independent chilean junta another meeting of all the qualified electors was called the arrival of a representative of the new junta at buenos aires who strongly urged chile to follow argentina's example had its influence and on the eighteenth of september the date observed as the anniversary of chilean independence toro resigned his authority to the cabildo the office of captain-general was abolished and power passed to a junta of seven chile's ports were opened to all nations quadrupling the customs receipts in a single year and the country began a virtually separate existence although the acts of the junta ran in the name of the spanish king however the junta's power rested upon a basis too narrow for stability representing only the santiago aristocracy there was no certainty that its orders would be respected in the provinces or that independent juntas would not be set up in other cities to remedy this difficulty a national congress was summoned but the junta allotted to santiago almost as many members as to all the other municipalities together the elections took place in april eighteen eleven and while they were going on the spanish officer in command of a detachment at santiago revolted 
A member of the Junta, José Carrera by name, an active and ambitious young man who belonged to one of the most influential Creole families, distinguished himself by attacking and defeating the Spaniard with an improvised force of armed patriots. When Congress met, it voted many reforms, abolishing slavery, reorganizing the judiciary, freeing commerce of vexatious restrictions, decreeing the payment of the clergy out of the public treasury instead of by tithes, and conferring on the elective bodies of the municipalities the right to elect their own city officers. However, divisions soon arose among the members. The representative of the outside provinces bitterly complained of the unfairness of the apportionment. The radicals wished to reorganize everything, while the conservatives insisted on preserving many of the old institutions. The Santiago representatives, chosen from the landed aristocracy, were mostly conservative, while the members from the south were largely radical. Under the leadership of Dr. Rosas, the latter withdrew. The Santiago conservatives, left in undisputed control of Congress, displaced the old junta, but Carrera and his two brothers had made themselves all-powerful in the army by cleverly seizing its Spanish officers. He determined to ally himself with the radicals and assume supreme power. Marching to the hall of Congress at the head of his troops, he compelled the selection of the new junta with himself as chief, and expelled the members upon whom he could not rely. Rosas had meanwhile established a radical junta at Concepcion, and Carrera offered to associate him in the government. Rosas declined, and the Santiago leader, now frankly a military dictator, advanced with an army to reduce the South to obedience but the news that the Spanish party had gained the ascendancy in Valdivia and Chiloe intimidated him, and he made peace with Rosas, retiring to Santiago. His emissaries nevertheless continued to intrigue in Concepcion, and finally stirred up a riot which resulted in Rosas's expulsion. For nearly two years Carrera and his brothers remained in power, governing by military force, confiscating the property of their enemies, allowing their friends to loot the public funds, and committing many enormities. Conspiracy after conspiracy was formed against them, only to be detected and suppressed, while the patriots divided into hostile factions, each selfishly ambitious for control. Meanwhile, Abascal, the able and resolute viceroy at Lima, had succeeded in keeping Peru submissive, in crushing out the revolution in Ecuador and Bolivia, and in repelling the northward march of the Argentine patriots. He now prepared to send an army to re-establish royal authority in Chile. Early in 1813, a large force landed at Talcahuano, and, advancing to Concepcion, was joined by the garrison of that place. Reinforcements came up from Valdivia and Chiloe, and the Spanish general took the road for Santiago at the head of 4,000 men. In the face of this imminent danger, the pickerings of the patriots were hushed. Carrera advanced to the south in command of 12,000 men, poorly armed and disciplined. On the Spanish side, the officers were, however, suspicious, and had little confidence in their raw levies. Sudden and successful attack on an outpost near the river Maule was followed by a panic among the royalists, and they retreated, in disorder but with no great loss, to the fortifications of Chillán, only fifty miles from Concepcion. Detachments of patriots pushed on to Concepcion and captured that place and Talcahuano. 
The Spanish army was completely isolated in Chillán, but had found there an abundant supply of provisions and successfully resisted Carrera's efforts to take the place. His hastily gathered levies, without means of sheltering themselves from the rain and cold, melted away by desertion. Finally he retired toward Concepcion, followed by the Spaniards, and the remnants of his army were only saved from total rout by the gallantry and steadiness of Bernardo O'Higgins. This military chief, a natural son of the old Irish captain-general and heir to his Chilean estates, had made common cause with the patriots at the beginning of the revolution, and attached himself to the fortunes of Rosas, the leader of the Concepcion radicals. When the latter was banished by Carrera, O'Higgins retired from the army. The Spanish invasion had roused him. He offered his sword to Carrera, and his dashing military talents sent him quickly to the front. Carrera's failure at Chillán cost him his prestige. His rivals at Santiago took advantage of his absence to expel him from the junta. His violent measures at Concepcion exasperated its people to revolt, and his own troops became mutinous. The new Santiago junta formerly nominated O'Higgins to the chief command, and Carrera was compelled to withdraw. The new general inspired some vigor into the patriot operations, but the arrival of reinforcements from Lima gave the royalists an overwhelming preponderance in cavalry and artillery. The junta had recalled a large part of his forces to defend Santiago, when an unexpected movement by one of the Spanish divisions resulted in the capture of the important city of Talca, halfway between the capital and Concepcion. Though O'Higgins and the troops left in the south managed to repulse an attack of the main Spanish army, an army sent from Santiago failed to retake Talca, and its destruction left the capital unprotected. O'Higgins, by forced marches, succeeded in beating the Spaniards to the Maule, saving the city for the moment. Meanwhile, a revolution had overthrown the junta responsible for the fatal Talca expedition, and the new dictator entered into negotiations with the Spanish commander. The latter, confronted by O'Higgins's army, and anticipating a desperate resistance, thought it best not to press his advantage too far. He agreed to an armistice, and Chile offered to acknowledge allegiance to Spain, send members to the Cortes shortly to assemble, and accept any constitution which might be promulgated by that body if the viceroy would recognize ad interim the present Santiago government and withdraw the Spanish army within two months. One result of the armistice was the liberation of the Carreras from the Spanish prison, in which they had been confined since their deposition the year before. They hastened to Santiago and started an intrigue for the overthrow of Lastra and O'Higgins. Such was their popularity with the troops in Santiago and the extent of their family influence that they got possession of the city and were preparing to dispute the supreme control of Chile with O'Higgins by force of arms when the news arrived that the viceroy refused to sanction the compromise and that an army of peninsular veterans was on its way. Though Carrera and O'Higgins pretended a reconciliation, each distrusted the other and took the field virtually independent. Under such conditions, Chilean success was impossible. O'Higgins's division was annihilated at Rancagua, Carrera abandoned the capital and fled with a few hundred followers over the Andes, where he was joined by O'Higgins and the more determined patriots. 
This influx of the pick of the fighting men of Chile was a valuable reinforcement for the army which San Martin was already organizing behind the shelter of the eastern foothills. Between the rival Chilean leaders, Carrera and O'Higgins, he chose the latter, gave him his confidence, and made him his chief lieutenant, while Carrera, finding no place in San Martin's entourage, went on to Buenos Aires, never again to return to his native country. Both aristocracy and people in Chile were tired of the military misrule which they had suffered during the dominance of the patriot chiefs. A deputation of the most prominent citizens went to welcome General Osorio as he advanced to Santiago after the Battle of Rancagua. Within a month the Spanish power was securely re-established throughout the country. The leading revolutionists who remained in Chile were executed or banished, more than a hundred being exiled to the desolate island of Juan Fernandez. During two years and a half, from 1814 to 1817, Osorio and his successor, Marco del Ponte, ruled Chile with a rod of iron. So far as possible, everything was restored as it had been before 1810. The Spanish judges were reinstated, elective municipal councils abolished, the newspapers suppressed, and all the liberal reforms revoked. Meanwhile, San Martin, behind the screen of the Andes, and only a hundred and fifty miles from Santiago, was forging a thunderbolt destined to shatter into fragments the edifice which Abascal had been so skilfully constructing through seven laborious years. The story of how the silent Argentine gathered and equipped the quote-unquote army of the Andes had already been told. In the chapter devoted to Argentina, the reader will find a meagre description of his marvelous march over the cloud-high passes, the descent into the plain of Aconcogua made so suddenly that the Spanish forces could not hurry up to bar his way, the prompt advance over the low transverse range which forms the northern boundary of the plain where Santiago stands, and the overwhelming victory in the gorge of Chacabuco against the pick of the Spanish veterans, who confidently stood to attack, never dreaming until San Martin was right upon them that his main body had had time to reach the spot. The Spanish authorities at Madrid and Lima had made the irretrievable mistake of underestimating the efficiency of his army. They thought the troops in Chile amply able to take care of any 4,000 men the patriots could get together, but San Martin's army was differently provided and organized than the undisciplined masses, which had been routed at Huaqui, Villapujo, and Rancagua. The Spanish generals were not so much surprised at his crossing the Andes as at finding the troops which reached the Chilean plains to be well furnished with artillery, cavalry, and ammunition, perfectly ready for an aggressive campaign, and a match man to man for any force that could be brought against them. The royalists lost twelve hundred of their best men at Chacabuco. Only a thousand escaped from the field to fly in disorder towards Santiago. On the way, they met the Spanish cavalry riding to join them, but Captain General Marco, instead of rallying the three thousand men which remained under his orders, hurried out of town toward Valparaiso, anxious for his personal safety. San Martin had expected to be obliged to fight another battle and kept his army together instead of pursuing and annihilating the dismayed Spaniards. More than half the latter managed to escape to Valparaiso, where they embarked for Peru. Santiago received the conqueror with no great enthusiasm. The moneyed classes feared another prolonged civil war, with its attendant confiscations, 
forced contributions, and general disorder. The common people cared little whether a Spaniard or an Argentine occupied the governmental palace. However, no one dreamed of resistance. The partisans of the proscribed patriots and the votaries of independence and liberalism were delighted. San Martin, with his host of hardy gauchos and Chilean exiles, assumed full control of the capital. He summoned an assembly of notables who promptly and unanimously elected him quote unquote, governor of Chile with plenary powers. But this was not what the far-sighted and patriotic soldier wanted. He realized that Chile could never give that unquestioning support so vital to the success of his cherished campaign against Peru, so long as any stranger, even himself, governed by force. San Martin peremptorily declined the honor, but intimated that he would be glad to see his staunch friend O'Higgins selected dictator, and accordingly the enemy of the Carreras was placed at the head of the new Chilean government. With eyes fixed on a Peruvian campaign, it was only natural that San Martin could leave immediate details in Chile to others. Though all central Chile submitted with good grace, the South remained a stronghold of the Spanish sympathizers. Among its warlike people, the royalist armies had been recruited, and there lay the two strongest fortresses, Talcahuano and Valdivia, both of them still in possession of the Spaniards. After two months' delay, Las Eras, with a thousand men, was dispatched, but his force was inadequate and his advance slow. Before he arrived near Concepcion, an able Spanish general, Ordóñez, who had fought side by side with San Martín in Spain, had organized a division equal in numbers, with which he retired to Concepcion, and there was joined by the 1,600 troops who had escaped after the rout at Chacabuco, and who had been ordered back to Chile the moment they made their appearance at Callao. The Spanish general now thought himself strong enough to annihilate Las Eras, but the sortie which he led was beaten back in the Battle of Gavilan. However, this victory was in no way decisive, and the patriots were not able to make any impression on the fortifications at Talcahuano or to advance south of the Biobio. Southern Chile remained hostile, and Talcahuano and Valdivia were open doors through which the Spaniards could send reinforcements and supplies as long as they held command of the sea. San Martin remained in Santiago only a short time after Chacabuco. Prepossessed with the idea that Chile could not be safe or Peru won until he had organized a fleet to wrest control of the Pacific from the Spaniards, he hastened across the Andes to arrange with his friends in the Argentine government for the necessary money. The Chilean campaign had saved Buenos Aires from impending invasion. The Argentine patriots would certainly be crushed if Chile should fall back into Spanish hands. They could never feel secure so long as Peru and Bolivia remained royalist. The promises which he asked were readily given, on his agreeing that Chile should contribute $300,000 toward the purchase of a squadron on the Pacific, and 40000 for the support of the Argentine army on the Bolivian frontier, besides taking the responsibility of the pay and maintenance of the army of the Andes. Argentina was to aid in purchasing the fleet and hold back the Spaniards on the Bolivian frontier. San Martin returned to Chile, where he was shortly followed by an official representative of the Argentine government, and the alliance created by Chacabuco received formal sanction. He found Chilean affairs in a very unsatisfactory condition. 
O'Higgins was hated by the powerful partisans of the Carreras, and distrusted by Chilians generally, as too much under Argentine influence. His power really rested upon Argentine bayonets. His appointment of Quintana, an Argentine and San Martin's aide-de-camp, as acting dictator at Santiago, was bitterly resented. San Martin's presence did something to allay the feeling, but as a matter of fact he had little sympathy for the Chilean people, being a man who despised the arts by which popularity is gained, and who made few friends. Meanwhile the three Carreras were actively plotting from their exile at Buenos Aires for the overthrow of O'Higgins and San Martin. Their friends and agents swarmed in Chile, and preparations were made for a rising as soon as they should set foot in the country. The two younger brothers attempted to cross the Andes in disguise, but were detected and arrested at Mendoza. Quintana ordered the imprisonment of many persons suspected of being Carrera partisans, but his severe measures raised national feeling to such a height that it was thought safest to carry out San Martin's suggestion and appoint a Chilean as acting dictator in his stead. End of section 10